the spectrum of caring about the details matters more to people who are spending most of their time on visual design versus the overall sort of product design. And I think that's actually something that David is really good at. And like Levels, it's been pretty scrappy until I joined and to this day still, the design was not super polished at all. But there were magic moments in there where people saw that they ate some food and it caused the line to move in an interesting way and something that they weren't expecting. And like that's what product designers are trying to do is to find those magic moments that you can build an experience around. Like what is the user need? What is compelling about this? If you were to go in too deep into visual design at the beginning and you didn't know what that magic moment was, then you would have something that looked beautiful that no one cared about. I'm Ben Grenell, part of the early startup team here at Levels. We're building tech that helps people to understand their metabolic health, and this is your front row seat to everything we do. This is a whole new level. In early 2021, the Levels team was at a point where the product needed some polish, polish from a design standpoint. The initial product that was launched was really this beta version of the app where people could get their own feedback through CGMs, the continuous glucose monitors that we use to provide feedback about how food and sleep and exercise affects their glucose levels, all through real-time data. And so there was a point where it was pretty clear that it was time for a little more refinement in the approach to design for the app. We wanted to make the app look and feel like a product that people wanted to use. And so in April of 2021, Alan McLean came on board to lead design with the team. He had past experience in print with the New York Times, in designing health tech products with Fitbit, and even working most recently with Google. And now as of October 28th, 2021, Alan's been deep in product and doing all aspects of design. And so we sat down and we discussed his design philosophy, his outlook on the way he approaches design and some of his past experience. We learned more about his background pertaining to why metabolic health is so important to him and what resonates with him. It was a really fun conversation to have and here's where we kick things off. Well, man, we got to get into all these interesting things because one commonality, actually, so there are two commonalities. You lead design with the team and you came on in April, I believe it was, uh, beginning of April. April, May or something. <laughs> Seems yes. like six years ago, but <laughs> you are the fourth Canadian on the team. So that is something that we <laughs> share in common. And both of our backgrounds are in design. So that was mm. that was the first thing that, that I had trained in and... It is very cool to have somebody come in with the experience that you have, not just in design, but so deep as far as health tech design. Like you've been around it and exposed to it for so long. So what was it that initially got you into design? Like when did you recognize it in yourself? That you're like, this is a path that I want to follow. Hmm. Well, <laughs> I think that there was this time when I was in school where I really wanted to go into film. I wanted to go into visual effects for film. And during the course of sort of pursuing that, and I was you know, studying printmaking, and I actually found myself spending more time sort of making things on my computer and doing 
art on the computer and even like front end coding and creative coding, like I guess we would call it procedural painting. It's kind of a fancy name for just making, <laughs> using math to make art. And I guess I found at that time that it was, it was actually pretty, pretty compelling to want to like make a tool that you could use, design the thing that you could like integrate into your life. So that was sort of the transition from like sit back, be entertained to, oh, like let's make something that I can use. And during the course of that, I realized I'm not like a spectacular engineer, but I can sort of navigate my way through design. And so I started focusing more on design and yeah. And like, was that the early 2000s? Ooh, yeah, that was the early 2000s. <laughs> I went to the Alberta College of Art and Design in Calgary. And there was a time there where <laughs> I thought for sure I needed a really firm foundation in, in printmaking and, and drawing in order to get into animation. And I mean, of course that's true, but realized through the course of that, that actually that's not a natural talent I have. And so transitioned more into sort of like practical, like graphic design and doing that. And you know, a lot of front end work too. Like back in the day, the bridge between design and front end work was, it was a lot easier to make a website back in the day. So actually some of my first like paid jobs were more as like an interface engineer, like sort of towing the line back and forth between interface code and design. Early days of Dreamweaver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Classic, classic. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting though, because there are so many different aspects of design. So to an outsider, it's very much like Josh and I were talking on the hardware episode that we did relatively recently, but they're all different types of engineers. And the same thing goes with design. I mean, you could probably extrapolate that to any role in any company. Like there sure, are so yeah. many nuances to it, but design's really neat because being a graphic designer, well, are you a brand designer? Are you a product designer? Like, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah. Are you an industrial designer, right? Are you like, go down the list. Are you a UX UI designer? All of these things are so nuanced and they're not the same. So to your point of you really wanted to be an illustrator and doing animation, like that yeah. is a very, very different skill set than being a very, very good product designer. Totally yeah, different skills. And so when you think about like all these different types of design, how do you break it down and bucket it as far as like what interests you versus things where you know, you're like, I know. And again, not not saying it from a self-serving perspective where it's like, it's okay to pat yourself on the back and be like, I know I'm better at this and not that. What are areas yeah. where you're like, you know that you crush and then other areas where you're like, I am not touching that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I think the best way for me to infer that is where I spend the most time. And what comes really easily and when, what comes really feels like takes a lot of time to really come up with the right direction. So I think for me, I'm really excited about kind of reframing your relationship with technology and, and your own health. So that probably slots in more into like a product design or UX design sort of role where you're sort of defining like the principles of the experience and the framework for it and how you might potentially even just think about it on an emotional level on a regular basis. Now, the thing that, that I love doing, but I know that I lack <laughs> uh, some of the aptitude around is like just some of the core visual design stuff that you can muddle your way through and design systems, but I'm not going to create a 
typographic system for you. Like I'm not going to come up with a new font face. <laughs> mm. I'm very adept at like the practice of color in data visualization, but coming up with a brand palette, that's the kind of thing where like I can definitely figure it out, but I don't love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's the brand designer skill set, right? Where it's like people who are just so good at brand. And then like, let's go down that rabbit hole for a sec. There are people that are really good marketing designers. That Mm -hmm. being, they're good at designing collateral. They're good at designing assets that, let's define it because this is getting a bit nerdy and academic, but like (laughs) marketing collateral being like digital ads. There is a certain skill that comes with being really good at designing the right aspect ratio, the right headlines, the right visuals, the right like Mm -hmm. go down that rabbit hole. That's a skill set in itself. And then brand designers are people who are really good at designing the elements that being like the ill assume a company uses illustration right um or even photography like not setting up the ads but giving creative direction to Mm -hmm. what those assets might look like and then what you said about typography like there are people that are just experts in designing typography and kerning and line weights and yeah yeah. go on and on and that's where it gets really really difficult where you can be a generalist as a designer but then once you see people who are specialists where they're like, I am world-class at designing YouTube thumbnails that are going to get <laughs> high engagement, right? Like yeah, that is, yeah. that's a real job now. That's a For real sure. job. It's, it's yeah. wild, but that's the skill. I mean, there's so many sub-practices within design and probably at the stage we're at right now, it makes sense to have a generalist, like have a handful of generalists. But every once in a while, especially because it's a consumer product, you're going to need to tap those experts to create something that, that really stands out and, and has less rough edges, I think. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think that's exactly it. So when you start to think about design and design systems, what was it that you exposed yourself to, like growing up? What were certain things that you did to hone your skills and get better and better as a generalist, but also to get really deep in certain areas? Yeah, I think one of the biggest transition points I found was actually like having some technical know-how really transitions your thinking around the product and how you design it. Like just, just even just some basic play with the data or look at sort of the framework and the constraints. I mean, a lot of design is just about thinking about constraints. And when you operate in a world where there are no constraints, you can come up with the most elegant, beautiful thing in the world that no one can make. And so for me, I, I've had a lot of, a lot more success just as a designer, really digging into what are the people that are going to be making this having to deal with and can it, is it even feasible? And then you're kind of defining constraints on your terms rather than defining constraints, like re, <laughs> reevaluating those constraints and changing on the fly a little bit later. And then you kind of just compromise sort of the, the overall vision for what the design could be. So yeah, like digging into code when possible has, has for me like really been the thing that impacted my design the most. Well, let's push on that for a second, the constraint side of it, because you could argue that having things that are open-ended allows for full creativity. Like you can take this wherever mm-hmm. it goes. Yeah. The other side is that I used to love constraints from a design challenge perspective. So mm-hmm. not not necessarily designing something, Assume it is. So it's a design challenge. Like you have to come up with a design. You're not just design thinking that is solving problems through the lens of design. But when you're given constraints, like paint me a picture of the sun, 
<laughs> your interpretation becomes the constraint becomes the sun. You know that that's the deliverable you have to give, and then yeah. the interpretation of it is we have to deliver on this constraint. Extrapolate that to product, right? So when you're given the constraint of certain things, sometimes, and this is like the debate or the pushback on it is like sometimes constraints can actually help you be more creative because you have a targeted point that you have to go to and then you're trying to unlock what it is that is going to solve that challenge. Yeah, it's almost like there's a balance in all these things. Too many constraints and it's really difficult to do anything (laughs) compelling or expressive, creative, but too little and you kind of don't know what's working, what's going to be successful and a lot of design is really about solving problems. So maybe it isn't a boundary or like an initial thing to do is always what problem am I trying <laughs> am I trying to solve, right? Like that's the set of constraints. What problems do I have to deal with even to define like a successful product experience? So it's <laughs> a little bit of design word salad, I guess, but I feel like <laughs> without like some reins, it's hard to go fast. It's hard to work expressively. But when you can kind of get that sweet spot of constraints, you can come up with something that, you know, is really elegant. I've always found that mobile design tends to be, for me at least, sort of more elegant and more, you know, directed because the constraints are so there, right? Like you just, you have less space to work with. Yeah, constraints allow for chunking, right? Like let's assume three constraints, doesn't matter what they are, but there are three constraints and you're like, okay, I know that it's not about here are the lines or here are the boundaries. The constraint can just be a category, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not like you can't do this. It's just you know that you... a constraint. So actually, let's define a constraint. So a constraint might be, let's just use age, gender by birth, geography. If you're designing for that, you're going to look at those buckets and that's going to start to unlock certain things for you in the way that you approach the design. But if it's just like, Alan, we need you to design an app. You're like, great. No, what's what type of app is this? And it's yeah. like ju- just an app, Alan. Just an app, and you're like, is it for cars? Is it for health? Is it sports? Yeah, yeah. It's like no, yeah. just an app, Alan, because that's what you do is design apps. So it's like you need you need the buckets to actually like you need to chunk things out into these constraints so that you have a starting point. And that, yeah. I mean, that also allows for expectation setting right across a company or with if you're doing design work that's client-based, it's like you set the expectation about, and I don't think anybody ever goes that wide where they're like, just design an app, Alan, but maybe it's happened, who knows? (laughs) Who knows? When you think about the role of design at levels, so you've got all this experience, right? You started out in print, that being with the Times, the New York Times, doing editorial and content design. And then you moved into working with some of the largest health tech companies in the world. And when you start to think about design at levels as it pertains to some of your past experience and things like using design to create behavior change, how do you approach that problem? Yeah. I think some of that does come back to constraints. So, and just a quick clarification, the New York Times, there was some print, but almost all of it, when I was joining, it was essentially creating like an interactive team within the newsroom, which at that time there there wasn't really like a solid presence for one. So mm. and that was kind of pushing on constraints too. It was a you know the New York Times is this <laughs> storied newspaper and 
you know, there's, there's paper in the name, you know, like newspaper, that's what people are making. (laughs) And so you're coming in and you're like, Hey, you know, I'm mid twenties. I'm a designer. I'm going to make some stuff on the web for you. (laughs) They're like, what do you mean? That thing, that medium where you can change what it is, you know, immediately if you make a mistake. So that was kind of the dynamic that, you know, that I started in, but in healthcare, the constraints are often, can you do this thing safely? And can you provide guidance around like changing behavior in a safe and deliberate way, you know, that's informed by people's behavior? And can you do it in a way that is compelling? And a lot of health and wellness, you know, there's a lot of constraints there. <laughs> Just talking about, is the suggestion you're making correct? Or is this particular user in the frame of mind to make that change? You're kind of architecting choice in such a way that kind of hit that sweet spot of beneficial to the user, enjoyable, and limited effort. Yeah, it's one of those things where you can go really, really deep on it. But when you're getting back to the times, like, let's define it. That was still web one, right? Like, this is 2007. Yeah. You had finished school. You went to New York. So you left Canada, you went to New York and you started working when things were just getting online. Like that was still relatively new. There were a lot of major companies that didn't even have websites, which sounds absurd, but like that is <laughs> true. Shopify yeah. was, I think Shopify was 06, but it really didn't catch mm. on until 08. And by catch on, I mean like it was an actual company at that point. Right, right. So you're talking about like pre ecom, pre social, like social being in addition to Facebook, right? So that being like Instagram and TikTok and name like all these platforms, it was really just like, we're just getting into social. Twitter was just being formed. Like these are very, very early days. And so the approach to digital design was still such a new frontier that I think people traditionally in that time thought about design as being this outsourced thing. Yeah. As opposed to a core competency within a company. Like people thought that it was bonkers if you're like, oh, we have not a design team. We have a full time before like design in companies would just be called a graphic designer was basically like their role. But it's like, yeah, we hired Alan as a graphic designer. And you're like, you have somebody full time that does design for you. (laughs) Full time. 40 40 hours a week. And it's now like there are all these facets of design and roles of design in companies. And that's commonplace. Like you have companies with design teams that are 100 people and you're not you're not even like batting an eyelash at it. You're like, yeah, of course, that makes sense. Yeah, I guess the scope of the problems they're solving are bigger now than maybe in the past. So there's probably like a a deeper appreciation for the practice because there's a lot of user research and, you know, user testing and solving, I guess design thinking can kind of be thrown at a lot of different problems, but specifically at the New York Times, they had a a digital design team that was even in a different building. And so there was this like deep divide between (laughs) like the New York Times gets a story, reports it and prints it in the paper. And then eventually it makes it onto the web. Whereas things were happening in real time, you know, like stories, you can only release a paper a couple times a day. And Whereas in a, on a website, you know, you can just update it constantly, right? So the, it demanded like a different way of approaching stories and storytelling. and Yeah, and you get with all these different teams too, like that was still a team that was focused, a digital design team. But companies now will have 
roles like human factors designers. That's not like a weird role. That's just, yeah, of course they're human factors. And so if you're designing like hard tech, that being like, let's say a car, like Tesla, they will have human factors designers to see how people interact with the product, Mm -hmm. psychologically, how they think about it. And they'll work with industrial designers to (laughs) relay all these insights about the way people actually interact with the product. And that's where design is such a strategic advantage. It's not a transactional part of any product experience or product stack. But the irony is that some companies are very diligent about design. So let's use Ford, just because I love cars. Ford is notorious for having Mm -hmm. a fairly large design practice. That's Mm -hmm. probably a good way of framing it, a good design practice within their company. And then Airbnb. Airbnb is design centric, design first, like everything is design. And then other companies think of design as an afterthought still. So what's your outlook on that as far as like, where does design come into play in a company as far as the juxtaposition between being a strategic advantage and then this afterthought? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a really interesting question. And I, you know, it's funny, Airbnb is founded by a designer, right? I mean, they've got a deep history of design there. I think kind of expectations about what you're experiencing in a product, not just in the real world, in the digital world and, and so on, they're a lot higher than they used to be, I think. But in general, like I've noticed that sort of productivity tools, utilitarian things that solve a problem, in some ways you can kind of get away with <laughs> less refined design. But when you're talking about a product like Levels, we're very wed to your identity and sort of your journey towards a, a healthier you. And when people are using a product like that, they need a an experience that also feels sort of attuned to your need, like especially attuned to your needs, that's elegant, that's well taken care of. So I think the more consumer-ended you are, typically the expectations are just going to be a lot higher. And also, like there's just more opportunities for design. There's all kinds of interesting ways to delight people and help them feel positive about the change that they're making or just the journey in general. In some ways, like design in in a wellness product is trying to find ways to expand the surface area for positive reinforcement. And and ultimately, like that's going to lead to the greatest change for most people. And so when you start to think about, like if you're giving guidance to somebody who is thinking of starting a company, when do you think they should start thinking about design? Like And it's open-ended, right? Like there isn't a a right answer. I think you and I can both confirm our own biases and be like, man, day one, like design is so important. But other people who might have a different background or different experience will be like, no, we're going to punt on design so that we can just put out duct tape and popsicle sticks and like (laughs) we'll keep shipping that. And like full caveat, I love the idea of duct tape and popsicle sticks and shipping really fast, but also... I love design, like despite the fact there's those two are completely at odds with each other because design (laughs) is about perfection and shipping fast is about being scrappy. And so it's like, they're absolute trade-offs. Yeah. Well, you know, I embrace the scrappiness too. Although I do find myself because I'm doing a lot of visual design lately, I think there's a sort of a, a, the spectrum of caring about the details matters more to people who are spending most of their time on visual design versus the overall sort of product design. And I think that's actually something that you know David is really good at. And like levels, you know, it's been pretty scrappy until I joined and to this day still. The design was 
not super polished at all. But there was a magic, there were magic moments in there where people saw that they ate some food and it caused the line to move in an interesting way and something that they weren't expecting. And a lot of people have referred to that as like a magic moment for them. And like, that's what product designers are trying to do is to find those magic moments that you can build an experience around. Like, what is the user need? What is compelling about this? If you were to go in deep, too deep into visual design at the beginning and you didn't know what that magic moment was, then you would have something that looked beautiful that no one cared about. So <laughs> visual design definitely comes later. Find those magic moments first. And that's kind of what I'm most excited about looking for. Yeah, and you talk about those magic moments so much, not just from a user standpoint, but from a personal experience standpoint. So like, do you want to go into that a little bit? Just your <laughs> sort of your outlook and your connection to, you're very much in tune with everything that we do. <laughs> well, I mean, I've been looking at glucose and healthcare data for like my whole life, you know, type one diabetic. I think I've been trying to redesign diabetes apps <laughs> since I was a kid you know, whether I knew it or not, you know, throwing together Photoshop mocks and things. But I'm almost forgetting the question now, but <laughs> what was the question again? Sorry. Just you're talking a little bit more about your connection to it, right? Mm. Because you're talking about these magic moments that mm. other people see in product, right? They look at it and that is a true insight to them. But you've experienced your lived experience of these we'll call them air quotes, magic moments, aren't, they're not necessarily magic. Like it is a different lens through which you view that product experience, but you're trying to create behavior change around what you know the implications of like certain inputs and outputs are going to be. Yeah. Well, magic moments, that's when something kind of unexpected happens. But there is also just this, you're almost seeing a manifestation of your choices in a digital space. And that to me is pretty compelling. All of a sudden you see something that you've never seen before materialize in front of you. It's almost like virtual reality in a way, but you're seeing your body. You know, like you're kind of looking inside, which is literally our catchphrase, I guess. And those are the kinds of moments that obviously I've seen in my own data over the course of my life. And they can be really powerful and they can be powerful in like positive and negative ways. And so like figuring out kind of our emotional intelligence around that is super important because too many magic moments and you're going to have a hard time taking a break and having like pasta dinner someday, right? But not enough and it's going to feel, you know, pretty forgettable. And so I think we're almost like titrating the the delight and the the reveal of insightful information to you. We got to do it in like a really deliberate and intelligent way. Like if you're at your birthday party and you're having a slice of cake, you know, <laughs> we need to be thinking about, hey, we might want to have a bit more context and be a bit more like a human being and acknowledge that maybe at that time it makes sense for your glucose to spike up, right? Those are the kinds of design challenges that we're going to face that are, I think are super important. We've got to become a welcome part of your life like every day, right? And so there's magical moments there where like a magical moment could be that Levels doesn't tell you that your glucose is spiking because it knows that you're in a moment where that's what's going to happen, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, when you, I mean, when you approach design, like design concepts typically get presented like throughout the week, they'll be in threads. So we use threads for all of our communications, which is sort of Slack, eats, Slack meets email. Yeah. Um, but a lot of times you'll present the macro of these concepts at 
our Friday Forum, our weekly all-hands mm-hmm. meeting, you'll mm-hmm. say, hey, I've been thinking about one, two, and three this week. And the lens through which you present the concepts is always standing in the shoes of others, right? Like yeah. you, you really approach it from this lens of empathy, but also psychology. So you're saying, hey, which is behavioral economics, right? You're saying, hey, if if the magic moment creates a negative feeling for people, that being they no longer want to consume certain food, then you actually look at it as a failure. You're like, we can't create that. That's not magic. That is yeah. that is regressing from being a magic moment. And so yeah. it is the fine line of creating enough of a magic moment, but also knowing things like the day score. One thing yeah. you've been working on a lot lately where it's like, let's count, let's take it so it goes up instead of down because loss aversion, you're just like, you're losing all the time versus yeah. let's show people they're winning. Very, very different to look at things through the lens of psychology and design. Well, yeah, I mean, this is the stuff that I really love <laughs> looking into and reading about. And so it's always been sort of a passion of mine. We're, we're at this stage where we help you develop sort of metabolic awareness. You know, we can show you the first time how different foods affect you. But for a lot of us, when we, after we, there's a point where you get it, where you understand. And so when you get to that stage, we don't have to keep hammering you with metabolic awareness necessarily. We might even want to sort of dial that down and shift our focus to more positive reinforcement because you know, you've got kids, like you know how this works. <laughs> positive reinforcement tends to lead to more directive and positive change for people. You see this in Fitbit, you see this in Apple, you know, we're just on their their watches. People love being love getting their gold star. <laughs> and that's just the way we are as human beings. We love that reward. So perhaps like thinking now, how do we adjust the the journey for you? You know, and, and for me, I think I talked about this in the past, but finding more like we know you'll improve your health if you have strong social connections that also care about their health so can we bring your friends in somehow your family can we give you reasons beyond just yourself to positively reinforce you know the change that you want to make yeah and with community that's such an interesting one in itself because there isn't a one-size-fits-all some people are avidly waiting They cannot wait to be part of a social experience with people whom they do not know. And other people have no interest at all. They only (laughs) want to be engaging with micro communities. That being, let's let's define a micro community as somebody whom they have a first degree connection with. And it's like Mm -hmm. less than 10 people. And other people just want to use the product on their own. And so to serve up one option to people and say, this is the only way that it works here are your feedback loops. Some can create a negative experience for people because they don't want to be bombarded with community connection where they're like, I'm stopping using this thing altogether. It's now, it is no longer magic. It is, it feels like a burden. So it's designing around all of these constraints where it's like you're offering up something for everyone, but not saying it is the only solution that, (laughs) that they have. It's really hard. Yeah, it's, it's, I think, I do think I had this saying before that, personalization and like I used to think personalization was kind of like a a hack when you couldn't make hard decisions about the design of what if you know a product should be but increasingly I I feel more like especially for health and wellness you know there's no one path for any individual like everyone's everyone's unique and 
you know, we see this, this in the feedback. We'll make one change and some people love it and some people hate it. <laughs> There's ways to personalize the experience so it always resonates. And I, I think that's kind of the thing that we have to unlock in the future. I remember sort of the, the elegance. There's all kinds of interesting elegant solutions for these kinds of things. But <laughs> it's going to take time to unlock them, right? I, I look at Apple. How I remember when I was at Fitbit and we were constantly debating the idea of personalized step goals. And, you know, you could find a pretty good recommendation to get people to, you know, like some people will be able to do 5,000 per day and some people are doing 20. The default was 10,000. And the problem was that anything less than 10,000 didn't feel like a success for users. It was emotionally, they didn't like it, even though they weren't capable of it. They didn't like the idea that they had a lower step goal. And so, of course, when Apple rolled out the Apple Watch, I think they recognized that emotional tension in the product. And so they no longer had the number. They just had a dynamic ring that changed based on what you were capable of and sort of optimized for closure. And to me, that's like such an elegant solution to a problem that Fitbit literally spent years thinking about and could never seem to get beyond the 10,000, right? So I think there's interesting things like that you can do when designing a product to be sort of emotionally resonant. But then there's probably also just fundamental personalization to address like your specific needs. And maybe there's, to me, that always struck me as kind of like a hybrid approach. Just get rid of the number. (laughs) What do you think about as far as the slippery slope of design, right? Like design can be such a beautiful thing and it can also be dangerous sometimes. And and I don't mean like physical harm as far as danger goes. Um, Let's like disregard (laughs) the Ford Pinto poor industrial design. Let's go with, I'm talking the Pinto of the 70s, something we just talked about in our previous episode, but (laughs) the slippery slope of design being dangerous where the wrong feedback loops can lead people down a a path that is not what the intent is for the, call it the design team or the, the entire company, the entire product team that is putting forth a product to the world. Yeah, this is something I spend a lot of time looking at on the well-being lab at Google and looking at these essentially we've optimized for frictionless experiences and of course we spend a lot of time on our phone you know a lot of people don't want to spend as much time on their phone as they do and yet they're constantly almost feeling like they can't put it in the other room and i don't think that's sort of the consequence of over-eager optimization algorithmic feeds <laughs> and but a lot of design plays a huge role in that because we value effortless, frictionless experiences, but it's gotten to a point where, you know, sometimes, like ideally, I could get from point A to B as fast as as possible. But you know, sometimes when I go by a school, I need to have some speed bumps so I don't <laughs> hurt somebody. Right. The same things relevant to face filters and how much you use your phone, and you know, just constantly feeling like you can't go to sleep because you're getting pinged all night, and ultimately, without some constraints. You're going to have people that love, <laughs> initially love using your product and then deeply loathe it at some point because they feel like they can't stop using it. Yeah, and that gets into design. It's funny because design is a holistic experience, right? It's yeah. it's back to the conversation of like, it was. it's hilarious to think back that 
like if you were in design, you were just a graphic designer, like what do, yeah. what do you do? You are, that's all people would ever refer to what you did was like, if you work on the computer and it's design, you are a graphic designer. But mm-hmm. when you start to think about experiences, like they are very much designed end to end. And this is more along the lines of Airbnb, what yeah. they do and how they think about design, the entire stack of an experience. But that's where all these things like, algos, so algorithms, interface design, even design decisions that have to do with how notifications are served up. And you think a ton about that, but how notifications are served up, when they're served up and why they're served up, that is part of a product design. And that might not be visual from the standpoint of like you're pushing pixels. That is a design decision on the experience side of things. So it's, you're so right though, that we have to be so careful in the way that we design products because some things that start out a certain way, let's use Instagram, that was a curation platform for people who loved photography. And now Mm -hmm. it has gotten to this point where there are a lot of challenges around the way that people use it. And can you blame it on the algorithm? Maybe. Can you blame it on the interface and the behaviors that it creates for people who use it regularly or the content they consume? Maybe. There are all these things, but those are design decisions. And that is what anyone who is designing a digital product has to be so cognizant of. Yeah, it's so true. And I'm, I'm really glad to hear you say that. Great design advocate, because um, if you're kind of in graphic designer mode all the time, you know, you look up and you've made something that looks beautiful, but potentially is created like a pretty sort of a net negative for people. Um, and it's sort of unintentionally you kind of optimize yourself into a corner that it's hard to get out of, especially if the engagement is super high. When I was at Fitbit, I feel like I'm just dropping <laughs> Fitbit stories here, but no, it's I, good. I love it. <laughs> we had a, uh, you could set goals for individual things, you know, like steps and active minutes and things like that, stairs. But we also had one for calorie goals. And so we noticed that, you know, a lot of people didn't use calorie goals, but there was a contingent of people that were very dedicated to using it. And when we dug into it a bit more, it turned out that a lot of these people were suffering from eating disorders and had a really negative relationship with the product. Um, We'd hear stories of people telling us they couldn't use Fitbit anymore because they felt compelled to set a calorie goal, incredibly low calorie goals. And so the designer was not thinking about that. And, and that's the kind of thing where if you have enough early research, you can start thinking about that or just some critical thinking. But if you're not thinking about some of the unintended consequences, you get yourself in a position where you're potentially actually harming people. And so that's something that we, we talk about at levels all the time. You know, we want to do competitions and things like that. And some people are definitely the right mental model for it. But there's a small contingent of users that could potentially be very, be very problematic for and so yeah. it may not be necessarily that we never do that kind of stuff, but we find the right guardrails and the right like ways to mitigate and, and keep it sort of healthy, make it a healthy experience. Yeah, that is analogous to designing products in long tail communities. So let's use designing products within the disability community. And mm. I think we should define what that exactly is, right? So within the disability community, that being the ally community, A11Y. Mm-hmm. Um, there are all these different aspects of designing for disability. So define it exactly as it is. Type one and type two 
classifieds as a disability, right? And when companies are designing for versus with communities, then that can be hard too, because it's mm-hmm. it's along the lines of what you said, where whomever the designer at Fitbit was didn't intend for, and granted that doesn't fall within disability as far as classification, that being eating disorders. I don't think it does. Maybe correct me if I'm wrong, but um, the intent is not we're designing something and people who use a product like this, we're just not going to worry about it. That's not the intent. I don't think that anybody sets out to design products that are used um, with or used by people in certain ways. So bring that back to the disability community. It can be really disheartening when somebody works really hard or a team works really hard to bring forth a new product to the world and then it's just not meeting the mark for intended use because a large subset of the population, let's say people who would be hearing impaired, right? That's a good example is people who are deaf or hard of hearing. That is a part of the disability community that relies heavily on transcription that is accurate Mm. for things like Zoom meetings. And so if they don't have, if they have something that's only 80% accurate in AI transcription, well, that's not serving their purpose. It's not good enough. It's not helping them to digest information. And so then you go, well, like you can't look past that. And so there are all these nuances to saying like when you're designing products, these there are these considerations where sometimes you can't see around the corner because you don't know what you don't know, but you have to be empathetic towards people who might use a product eventually like in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And such a great point. And you know, as a user experience designer, you're sort of the, you've got to have a keen eye for those particular users. And I think the thing I've noticed, especially around wellness stuff is that maybe a very small percentage of users are in that sort of risk category where they potentially transition into you know, an eating disorder related to their glucose or logging food or whatever. But there's a whole, it's sort of a, it's a gradient, right? <laughs> like there may, there's the people that will transition into problematic use and they might've had problematic use no matter what the product was in some cases. But there's a whole bunch of other users that kind of feel it and are uncomfortable with that relationship and just stop using the product. So it tends to be that you can use those ends of the distribution to inform kind of what the middle wants. There's strong problems or there are big problems to deal with, but they can inform sort of that whole slope down the distribution to help you have like a healthier, more positive relationship with your users. So, Yeah, I think that's exactly it. So if you're thinking about giving guidance to anyone who's interested in design, what are resources that you dig into or resources that people can check out as far as books, podcasts, articles, things that you, mm. I guess, that, that you reference regularly? Yeah, <laughs> there's so many. Where should we begin? I mean, I think if you, since we're just on the topic of accessibility and sort of research and user-centered thinking, I think Mike Montero is at Mule Design is, most designers probably know him, but if you haven't you know, read any of his books or seen any of his talks, they're really great. It's about thinking about people in an ethical way, thinking about the relationship with their products in you know, a holistic and healthy way. If you're interested in visual design, <laughs> I mean, I'm sort of just harking on my <laughs> former friends or former colleagues, but your Google design, you know, material design library is actually like an incredible resource. I refer to it, even though I use it all the time and <laughs> I still refer back to like those principles and guidelines on a pretty regular basis. And sort of to that through line of design for, for everyone, that's because they're dealing with scale so much, you get this really like 
thoughtful look at how to design like something basic, like a component or an input field. What else for design? <laughs> I spend a lot of time visualizing data and sort of trying to find ways to stretch the boundaries of sort of representations of data. So I always recommend to people to look at Observable. Observable has all kinds of beautiful data visualizations started by Mike Bostock. You know, he made D3, great visualization library. So tons of beautiful stuff on there. Are there other resources that you tap into that aren't design related? And the reason I ask is, so you're an avid biker, you love cycling, but oh, yeah. you could be reading a cycling publication and you could be doing whatever else, like outside of design, but then that gives you insight towards whatever problem you're working on because you start to connect all these unrelated dots. So are there things mm. that you you personally reference regularly that helps you to to form these neural pathways? Mm. <laughs> Maybe I'm struggling with the question, but it's I think where are we going with this? <laughs> Who are you, Alan McLean? <laughs> what are your uh, interests? Oh, okay. Well personal interests, yeah. I mean I spend a lot of time on things like Strava, and obviously I'm a big fan of things like Peloton and Zwift. So I love all things cycling. Used to do a lot of triathlons, the health and connected space for, you know, like wearables and digital tech. I follow DC Rainmaker a lot, you know, because he does these insanely long posts about health and fitness technology. DC Rainmaker, there's like a prolific blogger that will write like a 30-page article on the ins and outs of a new heart rate tracker, for example. In terms of in terms of design, like I'm just living on Twitter, honestly. <laughs> I feel like I've put away with, I've done away with like podcasts and specific like Fast Company articles and I just inhale it all through Twitter these days. Interesting. Yeah, Fast Company was, I mean, that was the first real design business resource. Like the, yeah. the cross-section of business and design, call it, oh, I don't know, oh four, oh five, around there when there was more reporting in it. Like yeah. things used to be siloed, right? It was like sure. ink is just for business. And <laughs> let's say, I don't know, design boom is just design. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then fast company is this like hybrid. It's like right. ink meets right. design boom where you, they're reporting about design and business. And that in itself was such a beautiful, I'll call mm -hmm. it that because it was near and dear to my heart when I, I used to read it every oh. single day. And mm -hmm. now now I read more TechCrunch, but it was such a great, great resource between, we'll call it 05 to, I don't know, even late 2010 or yeah. early, early 2010s. Sorry, it's, it's changed a lot as of late, but it's, that was like really a, an interesting resource that was doing reporting that no other publications were. Yeah, totally. And they took a, such a design centered lens on everything. It was always, you know, compelling <laughs> reading, like you'd see the ins and outs of how they designed something. It's interesting how these mediums stick. Like, it's funny, fashion is still very much in print, right? And a lot of times it's because the ads are the, are, the print ads are the fashion avatorial almost. So I don't know, I was just thinking as you were talking about mediums and websites and we were talking Twitter, it's like somehow fashion has seemed to stay out of that convergence on online, but maybe that's just in my head, I don't know. It's the print in you, the New York Times print forever, maybe, maybe. forever in love with print. Gutenberg. It's a great medium to work with. You got so much space, you know? That's very true. Very true.
I got turned down the first time I applied at the New York Times. And I was like, okay. And I just messaged the recruiter every day for like six months until another job opened. And then interviewed again, sent flowers, called her every day until she just gave me the job. Amazing. Um, and then Google, I applied to Google like every month since 2006. Like I just pinged them. And then finally, I never heard anything back. And then one day from Verily, they replied and said, oh, we got your application, but it looks like you're not quite the right fit for this. And I replied to her and I was like, no, I'm perfect for this job. You're crazy not to interview me. And she replied and was like, oh, okay. So it's like, yeah, we've got to teach these Canadians to just push a little bit harder, you know?